and welcome to the SLB Podcast, where we talk about ELT, SLA, and other things that enthrall and infuriate us. I'm Neil McMillan, President of the SLB Cooperative, and joining me today will be Noah Green and JPP Gerald to talk about racism and whiteness in English language teaching. Obviously, we're going to share uh, information about you, Justin, and your work in the show notes, but can we just do some brief introductions? So uh, my name is JPP Gerald, or Justin. Uh, I've been using the initials for publishing because they just kind of cite your last name anyway. And I started by teaching English in South Korea in 2008 when I was 21, and the students were all of five years younger than I was. And I did that for two years, and I realized I didn't know what I was doing. So I said, I will get a master's. So I came home to New York to get a master's. It turned out my program was actually online. I didn't need to come home, but oh well. Um, so then I got my master's in 2012, or I finished my master's in 2012. And I was working sort of the, not quite itinerant because I was in New York, but the like piecing together part-time teaching jobs around New York City situation. They're mostly adults. I taught high school in South Korea, but I taught adults here in New York. And then I wanted to pay my rent. So I got a, a job at a nonprofit where I was managing um, adult like ESL classes, um, teaching them too, but more in the managing side. And then I got a different job, which I'm trying to leave uh, now, uh, which is not so much language, but I went back to school again because I can't stop to get my doctorate in instructional leadership, which just could mean anything. Uh, but I've chosen to focus my research on language teaching and then race and whiteness, because as I started looking into language teaching and asking questions, these things just kept coming up. And Noah, maybe you could, could you do the same thing? Because uh, Noah, you're a member, I know you. Well, I don't know you. I mean, I don't know everything about you, but uh, listeners won't know you. Uh, well, uh, I'm Noah Green, and uh, I'm a white woman from Kansas, so I feel like <laughs> right on, on black. No, um, um, I'm... I moved to Barcelona in 2003, the age of 30, and did the, the uh, SELTA course and began teaching kind of the way some people do, just, you know, as a, just as a step. And then slowly I actually discovered I liked it and it's and turned into a career. And uh, so, yeah, I've been here now for, what, 17 years. Though still doing that. Uh, piecing together a timetable through various jobs. Now I work uh, essentially private lessons, tutoring some high school students, doing some business classes. And then I also do uh, a bunch of hours at uh, essentially a state-run language school. Is the called the Escola Oficial de Idiomas. And they do extracurricular language teaching for... Um, uh, general classes from, but from teenagers through to adults. Right, and you're a member of... Uh, the and I'm a member of, uh, of uh, SLB. And just to be clear, we should point out that you're one of only two members uh, who of are color. people of colour. <laughs> the other one is not me, just so, <laughs> just so we're absolutely uh, so, yeah. clear about that. Uh, this is a 10%? Is that a 10? How many of those are there? there 20 yeah, so there are now? about 20, 21. Um, I, I haven't done it. <laughs> I need to count because uh, maybe I'm missing somebody. So if we say that's about 10% of <laughs> what members, is that representative possibly of the ELT field or, or ELT in Barcelona. Just to make it clear to Justin, uh, our co-op is a free and open membership. We're not an employer as such, so our members are freelance teachers mainly, sometimes translators, materials writers, and we, we are an organization that tries to help each other get work and, and develop professionally, etc. So it's a ostensibly open uh, membership, anyone who wants to can join. But well, here we are with two, two out of the 20-odd 
being people of colour, I, I wonder, I'll maybe ask Noah first of all, do you think that's representative of Barcelona as a now, place to it's teach? really, like, I've really looked at extrapolate my experience into any kind of like statistical or representative thing because yeah um and yeah i, just, I honestly i i don't know how my experience would translate into like uh typical for typical for teachers of color who i have obviously met others though a minority of course and um so yeah I, I don't i don't know i don't know if that's representative or not in terms of in terms of the number, just even in terms of sheer numbers, I honestly don't know. Justin, in your experience and, and research, because I, we're going to talk more about, uh, I think, one of your key articles, if not the, you know, your number one key article at the moment, you can correct me if I'm wrong, which is the one published. I only have like two, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So well, far, me... there's, a bu- there's a bunch coming out in 2021. But anyway. Okay. So I'm referring to the, the article entitled Worth the Risk towards decentering, uh, decentering whiteness in English language teaching. And you make the comment that, you know, I think it's a fairly obvious observation that uh, the majority of English language teachers, at least in terms of the ones that travel the world going into uh, teaching private language schools, because of course, there are many contexts in the world where that w- would not be the case. But in terms of this idea of the ELT teachers are going to backpacker traveler, it does seem like the majority are, are white. Any comments on that on your observations from experience and from research? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to get an act like a, like a hard number, right? So because, first of all, I doubt there is a hard number of who the teachers are overall in the world. Like just yeah. the full number of all of them. Um, that's partially just because it's hard to do, but also partially by design because it's easier to oppress people when you can't actually count them. Um, But also, I I mean, there's even not just teaching, like that sort of itinerant lifestyle is just easier when you're, you know, from a a racially majoritized group, right? Mm -hmm. You know, not even just working, but traveling when you're white is a little bit different than traveling when you're not white. Um, and, you know, ingratiating yourself into a culture, right? What, what position will you be given? Again, not just terms of job, but a social position when you go to a new place is something that certain groups of people have to think about and certain groups don't really have to think about too much. Like, I think I'll go over there. I think I'll go over there and I'll be greeted warmly. Um, and it's not, you know, I went to Korea and, and I made a point of taking the public school job there because I knew that the private school jobs there private school, private language academy, not private school like we have in yes. certain places. Mm. Um, you know, they had, they, they paid you a little bit more, but they would do some weird stuff, some shady stuff with, uh, with, you know, employment practices. And I knew if I had some trouble in a foreign country and I'm black, it's going to be harder for me to extricate myself than it would have been if I was white. So again, I don't, it's hard to put a, a full number on it, but I would say that like just sort of the, just the people who feel like it's easier to move around, you know, that's going to be a white trade around the world, whether they're, whether they're literally white or white adjacent or something like that. Right. Now, maybe we can clarify white adjacent. Yeah. So, well, I mean, the definition of white is not really static, right? Mm-hmm. You know, in certain places, being classified as white is very clear on who that is and who that isn't. And in certain places, it's kind of muddy because, again, the definition keeps changing. A hundred years ago, if you were from certain parts of Europe, you weren't white, at least in the United States or in the UK or something like that. Um, So when I say white adjacent, I'm saying people who are given the privileges of whiteness in some places, but maybe less of them in other places. And I don't want to say that's based necessarily on ethnicity because, which I'm distinguishing from race, uh, because, you know, you can be very dark from one place, but be seen as white because of something else. So, and then there's also the idea, and this, there's, there's scholarship debating this back and forth, whereas like in the United States, for example, certain racial groups that we might not consider white are sometimes given more of the privileges than black people, for example. So they're considered more white adjacent. I'm referring mostly to certain types of East Asians in this case, Mm. um, who you and I would understand are not considered white. But 
because of various stereotypes, usually various anti-black stereotypes. They're considered, you know, the model minority. And that, first of all, is harmful to them. And it's also harmful to other groups. So, you know, that is a little bit a different situation. And it's why, at least in the United States, we, we sometimes say black, indigenous, people of color as one group, uh, mm-hmm. rather than just saying non-white, because the experiences are different. But that does not mean Asians are not oppressed. It's just a slightly different situation. Right. No. so, I, I mean... Let's just dive into these concepts a bit more because I think it's, it's really important to clarify. Um, and I think one of the really important things about this article, we hope to discuss a little bit more, the Worth the Risk article, is it brought into the discourse, you know, it's not only you, of course, writing about these perspectives in ELT, but there aren't many people. Um, and I think you've done a good job of, um, let's just say, putting it out there on Twitter and having lots of people exposed to it and looking at something, looking at ELT, which is using terms that they're not familiar with, precisely because of some of the things you talk about in the article, that race and uh, critical race theory is just something that has been ignored in a lot of places in the study of ELT, the academic study of ELT, as well as in the practice, the everyday kind of ideological practice of, of ELT. So just to go back a little bit to what you said about whiteness, the concept has changed, so we're not talking about something essential that belongs to people just because they've got white skin. We're talking about something that's more socially constructed. Right. And socially constructed, you know, power construct. And, you know, ultimately whiteness is an, is an ideology and yeah. from which various structures descend, right? Which is why it shifts. You know, it will continue to, to transform itself to protect its own property. And this is not necessarily the fully the domain of, people with light-colored skin or whatever you want to refer to it as, because I don't like saying fair skin because then what's the opposite of fair, right? You know, because if you look at the history of whiteness, which I've been doing a lot since I wrote the article, is they, they spent hundreds and hundreds of years just trying to define what they meant by white. But what they really mean is who are the people that we consider full humans and who are the people we don't, who are owed respect and protection and who are not. And, you know, they used to throw around things like Teutonic or Aryan. We, we all know there's a specific, you know, negative association with the word Aryan, but it didn't always mean that. And all of these different terms that if we look back, we're just, the, we would say are groups of different white people arguing about what white means. Hmm. Um, and that's not, I mean, again, I'm reading American research on it, but this wasn't just in the United States, right? I, the research I'm reading is in English, so it's United States, it's UK, it's things like that. But, and to bring it to ELT, we just sort of, a lot of us, like, like Noah was, was saying, and, and like I'm saying, we sort of stumbled into the career, we thought about it, we're just like, I think I'm going to go and teach, I'm going to go over here, and, and maybe it'll be fun, maybe it'll be interesting, and then some of us decide it really is fun and interesting. But it's not thought of at all, really, when we go into the field. We think a little bit about ourselves as teachers, like what will it be like for me as a person of color, or for me as a black person in this country that I'm moving to, or in this school that I'm working in. But that's not a, you know, a broader category. That's like, what will my day-to-day life be like? And that's important, but people will need to understand that racism isn't just people being individually mean to you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the structures that support their cruelty, right? Or that allow for their cruelty, whichever way you want to frame it. So when you go think about ELT, when you think about the language we're pushing on people, we have to ask ourselves why it's being pushed. That doesn't mean no one can ever learn the language of English, because this is the straw man people throw at me sometimes when I say, you know, we need to think about the ideology of teaching people English. And people say, oh, you shouldn't teach the language at all. That's not what I said. Um, And uh, we just need to be critical about the things we are considering positive and things we are considering negative. And how the language we use and the practices we use reinforce these ideas or decenter these ideas, to right. use the word I was using. Okay, good. I'd like to come back to this idea of decentering. I think uh-huh. it's, it's, to me, very interesting that identities which are central, if you like, so in, in Europe and uh, North America, the, the white is the, as we might call it, the hegemonic identity, the one that's held all the power for years. And it's interesting to me, you're talking about, you know, arguments about how to define whiteness. It seems to me that central identities are the ones that they find it hardest to define themselves because they tend to define themselves against what they are not. And so 
Uh, and the same can be said, of course, of, of straight sexuality, that uh, how do you articulate what straight sexuality is? They spent all the time <laughs> defining what the so-called perversions were. And these uh, minoritized identities then take on a kind of, not an economic power, but a discursive power in the sense that they have a way of articulating themselves. And I'd like to maybe ask you what you mean when you talk about racialized identities. I'm going back uh, a bit about this. Also, one thing is, you know, these majority identities often don't even consider like that they have a racial identity you know like yeah. racial identity is for the other that that whiteness is not a racial identity it's just an identity and that everything else just by default and so they don't there's not even a, like a consideration of of what whiteness is uh you know in in the in the in those terms of what it brings or what it what it confers upon yeah there's a couple of things that i want to add to that because that's entirely true right um there's there's that famous invocation by the Supreme Court justice about like pornography where he's like I don't know what it is but I know it when I see when it. Right? I recognize it when I see it. Yeah, yeah, right. So it's it's like that with whiteness. Like I don't really know what it is, but I know it when I see the other stuff, <laughs> right? <And it's> like, <laughs> I just know it's not that. And then we talk about identity. It's like it's not a racial identity; it's just an identity. But I mean, when you think about the way that people complain about identity politics, you know, whiteness is identity politics, right? All of the the grievances that these these quote unquote strongmen use are identity politics. It's just white identity politics, right? But they don't they they try not to say that by mentioning all of the identities of everybody else that they don't like. Um, it doesn't take much effort to read between the lines of what they're doing, but they still try to make it so that you have to put that work in. And then when you put that work in, they'll say, oh, you're playing a race card or why are you bringing up this stuff and so forth. So the thing about a central identity or a majoritized identity and the fact that it almost renders itself invisible, right, renders itself unmentioned. Part of the point of, of decentering something is in order to decenter it, you got to bring it out of the shadows, Right. You, you got to stop hiding it. You got to talk about it. You got to ask people, OK, when did you in your brain become white? Right. When did you realize that you were white? And when did this have an impact on you? Because a lot of the time when I used to have conversations with people about race before I really did any studying, it still ended up being about people who weren't white. I asked them about race. I asked white friends about race and they would say, well, I noticed I was white because that black person was treated a certain way. And I'm, I'm like, okay, but, but what about you? <laughs> like, you know, like what actually happened to you? And, and I didn't really have the language to analyze that until more recently because of trying to understand whiteness a little bit more. And that's why I think talking about whiteness, especially in something related to language, because we all know language and race are really tied together, um, which we can go into, is really important because it's not brought up. And although you're right, there's, I'm not the only person writing about whiteness and language and whiteness and language teaching, not a lot of us, and there's a reason for that. Okay, thanks a lot for that. So when we talk about racialized identities, is, is bringing in whiteness as a concept, a kind of way of racializing white people or asking or inviting white people to see themselves as white? I wonder if I would classify it as racializing white people, because white people, let me, that is a race, right? It is a racial identity. Um, and I don't want it to be seen as people are racializing you by having you think of yourself as white. So mm. therefore you'll think you'll empathize with people's plight or something. Cause that's not that whole, like trying to get people to empathize. Like if that worked, it would have gone away a long time ago. Um, but I do think the latter thing that you said is, is more of what it is, 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 you know, trying to, to really get them to understand their role in the cultural and social classification of people as racists, right? Because, this doesn't, it's not just something that fell out of the sky. It's not biological. And then, of course, you get that straw man where people say, like, oh, it's not biological. Why do we talk about it? Like this, I bring up these straw men because they happen a lot, and I don't want people to bring them up. So if we really think about the choices that we make and the power sy systems that we support, even if unintentionally, then it's a lot more practical for us to think about how we can push against them. Okay, just the, just an observation of mine is, is again going back to this idea of, of of centralized or hegemonic identities, which tend to render themselves invisible, not look at themselves, not try to define themselves. We just talked about a couple of examples of that. What worries me about whiteness as a concept is that when those centralized identities articulate 
their particularity uh, in terms of whiteness it's often a, a kind of fairly horrific path if you think about white nationalism or this this kind of uh, toxic whiteness where someone can stand up and say yes I am white uh, proud to be white you know this 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 is is this the danger is this the well I think that I that... guess can I just rephrase it slightly Justin sorry mm-hmm. uh, not to interrupt you I'm just what I'm saying is is there a way of uh, rendering whiteness visible that doesn't necessarily lead to this this kind of toxic narrow uh, white nationalism that we are all quite worried about yeah see I mean I get that I understand that if you if you say that you want to discuss white power then people think you're talking about a very specific thing right uh, we need to talk about the power that whiteness has but as soon as we start to use the language that has been co-opted by a certain subgroup, we have, you know, people aren't really going to be able to comfortably have a conversation about that. And I understand that, right? I, I was, I, sorry, I didn't, again, to, yeah, yeah. to talk about that with the whole, the white power being used to, in terms of that. I feel like that's almost, that's like an, in, almost an intentional way. Like, you know, like the way that the alt-right is uh, made something to laugh at almost is, is that, you know, that's that's white supremacy. That's white power. It's ridiculous. That if you want if you want to talk about you know and then and then you can start doing false equivalencies and stuff instead of talking about actually the power of whiteness as you said to 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 differentiate those things. Right. I think that's actually a really important point, and it's kind of where I was going to it because it's uh, like sorry. No, 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 no. I mean, I'm glad you said it because it's like people are necessarily and understandably apprehensive about discussing the power of whiteness without feeling like they're going to be seen as a white nationalist, right? Um, someone who's advocating for a white ethno state, right? Literally removing people from the state or moving them as citizens or whatever, right? So yeah, that is an extreme, you know, like, but discussing whiteness, like discussing whiteness, unpacking what it means does not make you a fascist. The problem is people haven't been given the language um, or they have ignored the language when it's been given to them because there's that too. Like people, some people have been told about these things by people and they don't want to listen. Um, and so therefore they're worried that they'll say or do the wrong thing in unpacking it, which is a legitimate fear, but also you need, not you, but one needs to, to take the, the risk. That's what the point is, worth the risk of understanding these things and, and, and voicing the concern that, you know, when I move into a, a you know, predominantly white neighborhood with my kids for the sake of quote unquote the schools what am I really doing in that right because I am as as dangerous as white nationalism and fascism are I'm more concerned on the day-to-day basis about why that neighborhood is 90% white even if they're not out in the street with guns right like I'm concerned about that you know I'm concerned about the fact that there's still, even if they have, even if some agencies have removed the native speaker listing, I, I'm still concerned about the fact that, you know, the marketing for a lot of these jobs is still like a young white lady. Um, like that, who, who's going to say that that's bad because many of the people they've hired are that person. It might even be literally somebody they've hired. But I'm concerned about what people are calling the soft power, but it's not soft. That's the stuff that affects people from day to day. Um, so you're right that, it's, it, it's tricky, but I would say it's just as tricky, in fact, much trickier and more dangerous to try to discuss these issues if you're not white. So people should take the time to do the research and do the work to be able to discuss whiteness and these issues, you know, cogently, even if they make mistakes and then keep going after they make that mistake. Yes, it's really useful to tease these these things out, as you say. Um, I guess what I'm referring to simply is the fact that when whiteness becomes visible in some, as you say, it's, it's, it's in, in extreme situations, it does have this uh, horrific kind of fascist um, aura surrounding it. But that's, like. that's intentional. But that's, that, but that's, that's, the, that's when whiteness becomes visible to white people. Right. <laughs> that's that's the that's thing. It. That's the thing is that's what whiteness becomes visible to white people when it reaches those extremes. Whiteness is visible to other people all the time. You know, right. like like I'd say like that, that's and that's sort of the idea. So white people ha- should realize what whiteness implies 
and all that it entails and confers and et cetera, et cetera, before it reaches the, you know, people marching through the, uh, marching through the streets with torches. Like that's, that's the idea. Right. That's but, the idea but, but, is that to confront right. what whiteness is before you even have, before, like, to, before you have, you've reached that point. Absolutely, because we're definitely not trying to say that uh, whiteness only becomes visible when it reaches that but, extreme. But right? that's or, kind or, of or, when white people, and by, and yeah, I'm generally like, you know, like not racists, racists are obviously whiteness, but like, and by like, you know, that sort of extreme race, but like, oh, sort of, I don't, I don't want to use the term say, but like, you know, well-intentioned white people, that's when yeah. they become aware of whiteness the the uh, of what a lot of whiteness entails is when it reaches that point and for people uh for people of color it reaches like the consequences are the same well before it's well before it's people you know uh having racist rallies like the consequences for people of color living in in whiteness are you know well documented and uh, you know uh, across the board so, so I think uh, that's, I mean, and I hope I'm understanding what you're saying is the idea is that is that for white people to understand whiteness before, like to understand whiteness on a much simpler level, on a much more like day to day, what this means. I just, it happened just by chance, right? I wrote that article in January, but it came out on May 31st. So like... The timing of it was one of those accidents of history, although one could say one shouldn't be surprised there was, there was an anti-black violence around that time, because there always is. But, but like the fact that for whatever reason, which I, I, I am curious about, and it will be analyzed for a while, why this one seems to have stuck a little bit harder, is that, you know, um, my article just sort of, like my article is not about extreme anti-black violence, right? Like it's not about the extremes. It's about the ordinary stuff in the field that leads to, you know, interper- not interpersonal, but like, like problems for students and teachers, right? No one's dying in my article. Uh, I don't particularly like to write about that sort of trauma. And it's a shame that it takes trauma to get people to pay attention. But my goal is to, okay, I have this moment when people are paying attention to what I'm saying. Nice, fine, good. I want to use the extreme circumstances around us to focus on the mundane you know choices is it really the choices and i know it's a system but my point is that it's the choices made by individuals that they don't really want to acknowledge are upholding a system that keeps people oppressed and you know in danger um i i often like white nationalism i think is, is is a little bit more separate because that's People can be a white nationalist in your house, but if you don't have any power to be a white nationalist, I, I don't know if it matters that much. But like as a as a system and as like a political thing, like that that is a you know a whole situation that's obviously going on and just seems to come back every twenty or thirty years. But I often don't like to make too much of a distinction between whiteness and white supremacy. This is not to say all white people are avowed white supremacists, because I think that word avowed is important. But in the sense that whiteness was cre- created. Uh, which, as it says in the article, it was created to be supreme, right? It was created as a category to justify colonialism, slavery, and all the stuff that was starting up around then. So, like, we, you, know, you know, because there have always been some sort of slaves, which people, again, other straw men, people say, well, there were always slaves. Yeah, 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 the Africans had slaves. But, like, because they were, slaves were just, like, the people who we conquered in a war. That doesn't make it okay, but it wasn't based on, like, we, the way we think of this group of people as inferior because blah, blah, blah. So we won this war. Not good, but old. Uh, but they needed a reason to justify just taking people and taking their land without necessarily having a war. And they just started coming up with things. And, you know, their, gra- their greatest and biggest invention alongside chattel slavery and the way the capitalism bubbled up around then was, was whiteness. And they continued to use that, which they try not to talk about to justify these things. It's interesting you use the word people don't necessarily have to be avowed white supremacists um, to benefit from or to help perpetuate white supremacy. Um, But I think another interesting thing that you talk about in the article is how uh, people can disavow their white or the benefits they get from white supremacy by various tactics. Maybe it's another concept we can 
try to unpack a little bit. You talk about this altruistic shield. <laughs> mm-hmm. I can so altruistic shield. I've been, you know, the funny thing is that that original article is like 13 pages, but they said, how about this short version? So it's two pages long. But um, that, you know, publishing, <laughs> that concept of the altruistic shield is not just about race, but I, my lens is race, so I focus it there. And it's the idea, it's different from like a white fragility where people get defensive if they're called out for race issues, right? Uh, like that's one thing. And it's related to it. It's not the same thing. Altruistic shield is the idea that one's, profession or some large act is inherently good, inherently good for others. And therefore, especially if that act is in service of or related to students of color, people of color, whatever. uh, And therefore, by doing that act already, you are shielded from any accusations of perpetuating whiteness and white supremacy. So it's like you see this a lot in teachers because the reason I came up with that a story I've told a bunch of times is basically I was at a conference. I posted a picture on Instagram from like a presentation, which was about some racist thing a teacher said. And I posted the picture and I said, wow, some teachers can be gross. I didn't say white, didn't say racist. And just all of a sudden, just this angry rant in my mentions from someone who said teachers work hard, which has absolutely nothing to do with what I said. And I said, what does this mean? (laughs) Like, I didn't say race. I didn't say racist. I didn't even say white. But the person just, and I said, what's going on here? Um, And so I started thinking about it and thought about my interactions. The fact that I'd sent out a survey and somebody sent me a private message saying, instead of taking the survey, you know, we shouldn't be talking about race. You know, the only real discrimination is xenophobia. And I said, you don't actually have to take the survey, you know. But I was just really confused about why she did that. And so I started thinking about that. And I just, it comes up a lot because if I point out that our field does oppressive things, not just does oppressive things, but it's based on oppressive ideals, then people will say, well, we're serving these people. You know, if, they, if we didn't go over there and teach them, then they wouldn't be able to learn English and they wouldn't be able to get certain jobs and so on and so forth. So what we do is already good. So it doesn't matter if, if what the, you know, the practices are harmful, right? Don't tell me my practices are harmful if I think I'm a good person basically. And not just think I'm a good person, but think I'm an altruist that I'm sacrificing for these people. Um, Which is why, honestly, notions of altruism should pretty much be divorced from our work. You know, I'm not saying we shouldn't try to do things that serve communities, but like once we start sacrificing with our jobs, it's really difficult to call people out for perpetuating systems of oppression because I I understand it. Like I used to feel this way too, but ultimately this is a job, right? And we should be thinking of critically about the choices we're making in the job. And so the altruistic shield is that basic idea that people will throw up the shield, whether intentionally or unintentionally, before they even get to the point where they're accused of, of racism or, or white, you know, of being a bad white supremacist or perpetuating whiteness through their actions, because the job itself is the shield. Yeah, I think it would be a good place to bring in. So Mandeep, Wanted to be a part of this conversation, um, couldn't be here this time, but I think it's, a, it's an issue for her that finds difficult. So just to be clear, Mandeep is English uh, with an Indian background, so she's brown-skinned, but speaks. It's interesting to me this thing about accent because it's the idea that if you had a blindfold on and you heard her speaking, it's a good, good evidence, isn't it? Of the central, kind of centralized whiteness. This yeah. unconscious racism, you would expect to see a white person when you took off the blindfold. I think a lot of people would expect to see a white person when you took off that blindfold. So, so she's got a lot to say about this, but I just wanted to share with you, Justin, because I thought maybe you'd be interested. So I am quoting from her email. She'd like me to share with you... Um, that your work, along with a few others, has made her reevaluate a number of, I'll put it in my, because I'm speaking, yeah. she's speaking through me, has made me reevaluate a number of my experiences in ELT and made me understand more how and why I have minimized a lot of terrible behavior due to wanting to be liked and not wanting to be aggressive or to be seen as aggressive or a creator of problems. Going forward, I will be clearer and more honest in the classroom and staff room about what is going on if any race-related issues arise, and I'll be on top of the materials I use and the messages they send out. That's really down to people like JPB Gerald, 
forcing some difficult conversations. It's a difficult balance between not ignoring numerous microaggressions and creating an environment where your students are comfortable. I'll just finish the last thing she said about this. She says, I think many ELT teachers are blind to the fact these issues exist. Now, this, this is a connection, actually, because we do, have, we do know somebody in common, at least one person, Justin. You have interviewed on your podcast Jade Sintron, who worked in Barcelona for yeah. many years, and we did some workshops. So Jade was the moderator of a big Facebook group for teachers in Barcelona. Um, and now one of the, our co-op members is moderating that, that page, but it's a huge resource for teachers looking for work or advice or whatever. So Mandeep's referring to this page, and she says, on that uh, page, which has thousands of members, there was a response to Black Lives Matter and how to approach it in the classroom, but no real conversation about racism within the industry. I doubt it's considered an issue. What was repeated in various forms was that teachers need to stay neutral in the classroom. And I wonder what JPB Gerald's response would be to that. Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate her kind words. Um, the whenever I say that, I feel like I feel I feel like Dick Cheney who said that in the at the vice presidential debate once. So I appreciate the kind words. But anyway, um, <laughs> I wonder about that too because I remember when I was I graduated from the new school in 2012, and for the next several years before I went back to school in 2018, we had this thing called teacher talking time. It still exists. I just don't do it anymore because I'm busy. But, um, and we would meet, talk about teaching. It's kind of what it's called. And one of the sessions we had, and I think it was the fall of 2016, when, so the last election, the last American presidential election was ramping up. Um, and people were talking about politics and do we talk about politics? And a lot of them, and by them, I mean white teachers, were saying, well, you know, I just, um, I don't want, I just don't like to bring, bring politics into the classroom. And, you know, I, I don't, but the thing is, I didn't really say anything because I didn't have the language. I hadn't done the analysis I'd done. Like I knew what I felt, but part of the problem, and it's also something that I think Mandeep is probably familiar with, is if you don't have the very precise language to explain a racial issue to someone, if you, if you are portrayed as emotionally res responding in any way, you will be discredited, right, or ignored right, or seen as flying off the handle, right, because it is an emotionally traumatic experience to have these racial things happen. So I didn't say anything because I knew if I got a single word wrong, now look, these people were my friends, so they weren't going to get mad at me, but it still wouldn't have been taken all that seriously if, if, if I had come off emotional in any way. Um, and so that's one of the things I think she's probably grappling with because like the accent thing is something I bring up in the article, right? And there's been a lot of work on that, you know, like I sort of build off of that work when, I, when I'm talking about whiteness because everybody has an accent, we know this, but even here in the United States, people, when I was growing up, I would say I don't have an accent. What I mean is I don't have an accent from somewhere else, right? That is more reminiscent of another place. And so when you say that people, if they were just, if she were here on this podcast, right, for example, and you couldn't see her, uh, people would assume that she was a white British person, presumably. And that's one of the, and that's one of the things that's a really stark and clear issue for educators and students of color who are discriminated against in the field. And that point about the group in Black Lives Matter is, you know, one of those sadly predictable things because I've, I've been in a group called the, I don't know, like social justice teaching something group. Uh, I don't know exactly what it's called. And when all this stuff happened, because the group is older than that, um, when all this stuff happened and they started talking about this in June, they were thinking just about how to teach about what was going on. But I would point out a couple of times like, but how much do you know about what's going on? <laughs> like, what is your connection to what's happening, right? This is not just this historical thing. It is a historical thing, but it's not just this historical event you can teach on, like the Vietnam War, where you may probably have had no direct connection to it. Like, you are involved in this, even if you're not in the streets, or even if you are in the streets. Like, we are all actually involved in the Black Lives Matter situation. It's just, are we supporting it, or are we weakening it? Thanks very much for that. Yeah, I think the other thing, I mean, obviously, uh, the conclusion we can draw from that is we would never advocate staying neutral in the classroom when faced with racism. 
Um, no, I wonder, because I think it's an experience that is particular to Spain, that you get quite a lot of casual racism that in the UK, yeah. uh, often, in my experience teaching in Scotland, is not saying people aren't racist, but there are certain things that are not said usually. Sure they say When I moved to Spain, there was a kind of, and, and not so much about black people necessarily, but a lot about Chinese, it, you know, these kind of cheap jokes about slanty eyes and different things that in the UK at least, I think, are generally quite unacceptable here are still to a large extent. So is it kind of... Um, yeah, I was going to say, with yeah, my experience in Spain uh, with teaching, I mean, professionally with racism, is that, is students generally middle-aged businessmen. But I'm not on the receiving end of it. I'm, you know, I'm, being, uh, I'm, from, I'm Canadian originally, and in and in all every situation professor i've been canadian immediately trump's race for for my clients for my bosses that has been immediately the you know and the the and like the end of doubting about my qualifications or like should i be teaching english and so what happens is i've had experiences with like racism generally not obviously not towards black people because they're they're not that stupid, but like to other people of color, but conspiratorially with me, which is which is strange. Generally, I've I, you know I point pointed that stuff out. Obviously, not not start yelling at students about being racist. Well, I actually have it at teen, teenagers. <laughs> Feel a little more, <laughs> and yeah, it's just weird. Like yeah, complete that I've been sort of drawn into it. They're, they've tried to draw me draw me into it, making comments about Chinese, Pakistanis, uh, and and those and various um, yeah non non white races. Yeah, that's that that's what I, I've experienced in terms of um, like my own professional development. And, and it's, again, I'm saying this is like I do not want to extrapolate any trend or anything. My um, the two, I've worked in a small private language academy, and then it says that now I work in, uh, the, in the official thing that I work for, the official school. And in the small language academy, now it was run by a woman who had, uh, had immigrated to Spain from Peru as, as a child or teenager. So obviously I'm sure that also colored her experience, if you will. <laughs> and uh, so, um, so there was uh, no, yeah, I had no, like no, I was promoted to the director of studies at that school within a few years of working there. And, and then at the, uh, the official school, the official language school, because it's run by the, um, by the state, it's mostly civil servants who, who populate it. So it is, in, it is entirely Catalan, and you know, uh, Catalan is still largely, largely monocultural. Uh, so, so uh, uh, Catalan people. But in terms of uh, professional support and development and stuff, from them again, they've just uh, uh, supported me that way, and I've not had to confront, be confronted with, or deal with any uh, clear institutional racism from them. Yeah, like I said for me the side is that the the middle-aged men, generally students. And then obviously uh, something is um, the materials, which mm. are not, uh, again, not explicitly racist, but definitely like I try when I'm, you know, in private lessons with, uh, to you know, I produ try to produce a lot of my own materials, but for, I do exam preparation uh, and Neil is very good at preparing his own, his own materials, for example, but I generally use standard official materials for like the advanced to the uh, proficiency exams. And there, yeah, you just, even if in the, the, the textbook there's a photo of a black person at the desk or whatever, the, the, the outlook is, uh, you know, is basically uh, Anglo-Saxon, British, even if it's around the world, you know, uh, there's a couple of things jump to mind. Like one book, the, the their their um, their reading that was set outside of Europe was that um, 
was it number one ladies detective agency? Yeah, uh, yeah, written by uh, a Scottish man. <laughs> um, you know, yes. a, a book about uh, uh, the the protagonist is a woman in Zimbabwe. I don't know. Was it Zimbabwe? Yeah. Is the book uh, I'm Botswana? Not sure, in yeah. Botswana, I think. Botswana, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, and then another one that just uh, this one. I was present in my mind because it was this summer when I was working on uh, I'm with the student we came across this text and called Global English and talking about how global how English has become globally dominant. And literally the, the, they said uh, it is not linguistic. English has found itself in the right place at the right time. <laughs> and I was like, that's what, that's a way to yada yada centuries of, of imperialism. Just, just yeah, it's like I, I I did not steal that. That money just happened to find itself in the right place at the right time. And so there's things like that, and that's where an exodus in those you know, the, the centering of whiteness in materials um, is definitely... I'd like to come back to that. If you don't mind, just me picking up on something you said a bit earlier, Noah, and putting it to Justin. Uh, you talked about your Canadianness trumping your racialized identity, that in a sense, once people identified you as Canadian, mm. that was good enough in terms of, okay, here we've got some, like, you're a native speaker. Can Another I, thing I'm sorry, I'm, before, before sorry. let me, um, now to explain something to, mm. just to Justin, that you're familiar, is in Spain, foreigners, there are two categories of foreigners. And it's, uh, it's basically racial, but it's also class. Like, are you from a poor country or a rich country? And poor, poor foreigners are immigrants, rich, uh, rich foreigners are giddies. And so as soon as I, as soon as I, uh, from Canada, I immediately get put in that category of foreigner. And right. it's a different experience. Yes, no, exactly. And I think it resonated with me because something I read in Justin's article as well, that I know you've read as well, Noah, is you have this paragraph of your author positionality and you wrote, and I quote, I am not immune to benefiting from the centering of whiteness in ELT, even though I am not white. Indeed, I received the offer. You talk about the offer of, of work in South Korea, I think. Despite my racialized status, because of my elite university pedigree, evidence of the illusion that one can achieve an educational escape from racialization. Yeah. Maybe just unpack that a little bit. So in South Korea, um, I mean, this is 2007, we're not talking about now, but I don't know that that much has changed. Um, I don't know that it hasn't. So, you know, before somebody points it out, um, when you apply for jobs there, you got to put your picture on it. And so they could tell that I was not white, even though I didn't say anything about it. Right. And I expect, like, the, the places that were hiring, the, I was working in a public school, right? So they work in the Korean government, and the Korean government knows enough about the United States to know that you can't literally say we won't hire him because he's black. They can't. They, they had Americans working for them, white Americans who, you know, some of them were great, some of them weren't, but, like, they knew enough to know that, like, when I was interviewed, it was interviewed by a lady from North Carolina. Like, like you know, they, they knew that. But I suspect, because remember, they hire the people, but then they have to match them with the public school around somewhere, right? And they know that they're going to have to work harder to get a school to volunteer to take a person if they're not white, because then the school can't advertise them having hired a white person. In fact, I said this on another podcast I'm going to be on soon. But they told me, not my school, but I was told in Korea that the ideal person for these schools to hire was a white Canadian woman, now, particularly a blonde Canadian woman. So I was not that. Um, and I suspect, and based on the conversations that I had with my co-teachers when I first got there, that the first thing they mentioned is that I had an Ivy League degree. And I, and all, like they would say, like the, the racism in South Korea was different than it is in the United States. It seemed a lot less hostile. That doesn't mean it wasn't racism. Um, it was just sort of of the, we don't know any black people, we're going to say weird stuff to you things. Um, and so they mentioned, I'm the only black guy in the group of people who was brought to the city that day when we were be meeting our coworkers. And, and then they go, you know, we recognized you as soon as we, we saw you. It's like, yeah, I know you did. Um, <laughs> um, but then they said, yeah, when we know that you, you went to Princeton. And they're like, yeah, okay. So that's basically, you know, they were trying to show 
friendliness to me, but they're also showing me that, that like I was an exception, you know? Um, and I don't think they realized that that's what they were doing. And from the conversations I had with people and also to the fact that there were not zero, but not that many um, ELT teachers who weren't white. Well, there were actually a fair amount of people who were Asian, but they were usually adoptees and they were going to Korea to like connect. But, and I, among the very few of us, like, it was singled out that I was the one who had that quote unquote elite education um, as for part of why I was brought there and was trusted a little bit more than I might've been otherwise. Again, I wasn't the only black teacher there, but of the 200 people in my cohort, you know, it was like three of us. So, so that was definitely part of it. When I was the director of studies of the school, I did always try to prioritize people of color, um, also specifically because of the racism I'd encountered. I just wanted to introduce to these people the idea, you know, because a teacher does have a certain amount of authority and, you know, expertise in the so that, that these people could see that, there are, that having authority and expertise is not the sole, uh, the sole domain of whiteness, that, that they could see that a black woman was teaching them something they needed to know, you know? Um, so it was, that, that was, that was my response to, to that sort of thing here. I don't know if it made a difference, but. <laughs> With 15 minutes left, we should, we should bring this conversation to looking at the ways in which now in, in your terms, Justin, we can, try to decenter whiteness in ELT. I guess, just to clarify, I assume, I, I don't want to make assumptions, but I assume when you talk about decentering whiteness, you, you are not really arguing for centering another kind of racial identity. Um, is, is, is centering itself the kind of problem here, the centering of anything, or what, what is it you're talking about when you when you talk about decentering Well, I whiteness? think, um, I do think that decentering in general is a worthwhile goal because the, as soon as now it's theoretical, right? Cause if blackness was centered, we don't know what would happen. Um, but cause it's just not, but generally speaking, I do think that the act of centering one identity as the, 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 the mountain from which all of the, the rivers should flow. I keep using this analogy, but whatever. Um, is necessarily harmful by making other things lesser or tributaries or whatever the streams, not, not deep in this analogy. So yeah, I do think that centering is that. Now, sometimes, you know, you have your little petty emotions, myself, and I would want to center blackness or center other identities just because it's just like, come on, they got several hundred years. But I don't, first of all, it's not going to happen anyway. Um, and second of all, it's, it's, it's a much more worthwhile goal to work in a more, if you're thinking about it in terms of like a critical theory way versus post-structuralism, like a, a post-structural, like a critical theory, which I use, right? I, I use a lot of critical theory when I think about these things. But ultimately, critical theory is challenging systems of power. And those systems of power are still there as long as there's criticism to be made of them. Um, and it would be better, like for my work, sure, it's great that the power is there as I can talk about it. But uh, for the future, for the long term, it would be better if the power wasn't really concentrated like that. So I do think that the concept of centering, because center seems like a pretty anodyne word, right? It just seems like something is in the middle, but it's not, it's like, like two, what has to happen for somebody to remain centered is violent and destructive and harmful, you know, because if things were just natural and not maintained by people with an agenda, then there wouldn't be one center. It would just be whatever the people actually needed. So. Right. And the paradox of center, I think is, if I can say this without sounding really pretentious, as Derrida said, is that it occupies both the middle and the limit. It, it defines, you know, it's the, the paradox of centering is that it tries to say, well, here's, here's the limit, here's, the, here's what we're going to exclude from, from beyond this. So, uh, like you say, it's, it's a concept worth unpacking. Now, you um, talk about a few different strategies for Decentering whiteness in your article, and uh, obviously we're going to share that article for people to read. We don't have time to get into all of them, um, but I wonder maybe if we could go back to something Noah brought up because Mandeep brought up the same thing. It was about materials. Um, Noah, you mentioned the 
reduction of black identities to a certain kind of stereotype. That I don't know whether it, whether it's the fictional character. Is it Alexander McCall Smith who wrote those novels? Yeah, um, exactly. Or the the talking about global English as if it just <laughs> it just happened by magic and ignoring the the history behind it. Now we can see that a lot in materials. Mandeep is also a materials writer, and she had this to say. This is the last thing she mentioned in her email to me. Um, and it echoes with what you are saying, Noah, as well. She says, as a materials writer who intends to focus on creating more diverse materials to use in class, how do I avoid tokenism? We all know the business English textbook that has one black guy on the cover, and that's that box ticked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the problem is, I don't mean, I'm not referring to Mandeep here, but when people, usually companies really, create these materials, they're thinking from a white-centric mindset, and they're like, here's what we're going to do. Let's add in some, we'll sprinkle in some, some, some salt, right? You know, we'll, we'll put some of this on top of it. Um, so you got to start the whole recipe over. <laughs> like, you, you can't just, here's the thing, let's add to it. You, you got to back up, go all the way back and think about what, what, you know, because slapping somebody on the cover or like, you know, when they give examples and they're just like, Jamal. And I'm like, where did, okay, all right, okay. Um, <laughs> and it was just like, what? He's just a normal person. We didn't think of, it. so like, what, what, that, that's the last step in the process, right? You, you thought of the lesson before you thought of who the names were, right? So let's think about the lessons because if you're actually challenging the power structures, right? If you're challenging the orthodoxy, even if you're still, and people say, well, if you're challenging this, how do you teach the language? Like, have some imagination um you the lesson would be different and if the lesson is different and it's challenging what's actually in place then it's not really going to be that important if you stick one out of six people a different color like like you know if you're, if you're challenging what the way english is, is imposed on people and it doesn't mean you don't teach the language it doesn't mean there are no um customs that they can be introduced to which i prefer to saying rules then you know, whether there's one or six people who are this color or that color is like, that's like, you, it won't even matter at that point. And if you're doing that, then just by nature, when you give an example, you're not going to have to stick Jamal in there. It'll be people from all different places and it just won't even be an issue. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good way of thinking about it. It's the questions that the materials might bring to light that would be far more important than the, you know, fulfilling some magic number of proportionality in the images that you use, right? This, this is more or less what you're saying. Well, yeah, yeah. Like, a lot, like a lot of the issue with diversity in general, like her, her use was fine because materials can be diverse. People are not diverse, right? One person is not, that doesn't mean anything. What does it mean? Um, but like materials can be diverse, right? Um, and the problem, and again, I'm not really speaking, criticizing her here, but the industry in general is they start from a norm and then they get to 2020 and someone's like, hey, and they're like, oh, wow, we need to do something. Let's just diversify what we have. It's like, no, you need to change the way you're thinking about it. And the problem is it's very difficult for someone who's been doing something a lot, you know, the same way for a long time or a company who's been doing something the same way a long time, especially if it's their profit center, to change their whole epistemology. But like, that's the problem. Like, I'm really more concerned with the epistemological racism than I am with the toke, like, how many people are, like, I don't care who's on the cover, man. Like, that's not that important. It's a stock photo anyway, right? So <laughs> it's, it's going to be like, how is your knowledge being built? Where, who are you learning from? And what are you learning? Because, and then, and then don't just say, well, I found one black person who agrees with me. It's like, okay, don't do that. Because like, you know, you can be someone who isn't white and be perpetuating these white centric ideals. We think what's one of the more famous things in ELT that we still talk about is the like three circles, right? The inner circle and the outer circle of the expanding mm -hmm. circle. And that guy, that guy's South Asian, right? Yeah. Um, but that concept is very like centric on an inner circle, outer circle and expanding sure. circle. And I'm not trying to look in 1985. I'm not blaming the man for writing these things, but I'm saying now in 2020, we can't really be thinking that way. So we can't just say, wait a second. One of the people I cited isn't white and they agree with me. So I don't have to change anything. It's like, go back and reconstruct the way you think. Mm. And that's a lot for someone to do, mm. but 
it's the only way we're going to actually make progress. It's not going to take two days. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think a, a lot of what you say resonates with me in terms of how class is, is uh, also excluded from ELT materials. And I, one of the things that I liked a lot about your article was this explicitly drawing together the codependence of, of capitalism and, and, uh, and racism. And I think it's a really interesting, if I can use the word intersection, that, I mean, I believe, you correct me if I'm wrong, that the content of intersectionality was born in, in terms of uh, workers' struggles being seen in, in racial terms as well. I mean, I might be wrong on that, but... I mean, I, I don't know exactly where the first word used. I know there was popularized talking about the particular struggles of black women and how, like, being a woman and being black, you couldn't just add them together and be like, oppression time, you know, 50 oppression mm. over here and 50, and now you have 100 oppression. Like, it's a very specific situation. Sure. Um, and so, but like, class is important. And one of the most important things is not even just a full analysis of capitalism in general, which is a problem, but it's also just like, Forget about what preferred economic system people have. It's the very specific profit motive of these schools, right? And I, I, you got to keep the lights on. But, I mean, although some schools probably shouldn't have the lights on. Um, but, like, that's the thing. It's like, um, like some, of those, some of the lights need to go off. Um, but, you know, when you just say, well, we hire these teachers because that's what the students want, um, and if we don't give the students what they want, then we will close. And like, who's going to say, do you want to support the fact that they only want white teachers? Right. You know, like, is that like a, is that like a moral calculation? You're okay with the result of, um, and you're going to say, not you, but people will say, well, yeah, I, I just, I need to, I need to make a paycheck. And it's just like, I get that. But is that the paycheck you want? Uh, and I'm talking about like school owners more than I am like the teacher. Sure. But you hear it in publishing as well. I don't know where I heard it first, but what is the expression? ELT publishing is not racist. Our customers are. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, that's not untrue, but why do you think that they are? Like, right. you know, the materials are, re- like these materials, like they fall out of the sky. Sure, sure. And, and the place at the right time. Yeah. It's just like, I don't know. I mean, you know, that's, we got to serve the market, you know? And it's just like, first of all, there's like four companies making a lot of money anyway. If they wanted to change what the customers bought, they could do it, right? Like they really could do it if they wanted to and they don't want to. So it's the rest of us who have to push against it and we have to do what you're doing, you know, to cooperate and build together because the, the, the people with the money, they don't really care. They probably put, they put, I'm sure they put out some statement in June talking about, you know, we must go against racism out in the world that we have nothing to do with. And I don't know how these things happen, but it's bad. Um, which is pretty much how every statement sounded. If I, I don't know if I'm allowed, but if I could put a quick plug for some of the, the classes I'm teaching, Please you know, do, yeah. yeah, yeah. So one of the things I, I, I wrote that article and then everybody started sending me their, their white feelings about it. Um, and that was nice, but uh, it, it got kind of annoying. And I said, you know, Justin, you really do study the stuff you could teach about it. So now I do. I mean, it's all on Zoom. I, it's called the Ezel Project, which is my son's name. Um, and basically people can actually work with me on decentering whiteness in their institution, in their community and so forth. So it's all on my website, jpbgerald.com. Check it out. I would love to work with any teachers who are interested. Um, and we can go from there. Great. We'll put that in the show notes as well. I feel like we've really only scratched the surface here. It was inevitable, I suppose, but it's been Really interesting to talk to you. And Noah as well, thanks so much for your contributions. Um, apart from the ESL project, can maybe you mentioned that you're going to have some publications coming up. Maybe we could finish yeah. by what's coming up from you, Justin, well, in terms of publications. Mm-hmm. So next year I have three chapters in books coming out, um, edited volumes, as they say, which will necessarily be hard to acquire because they are academic books and they don't actually want people to read things. Um, (laughs) But when they come out throughout the year of 2021, I'm not that hard to find. I will send you my chapters. Um, So, you know, reach out to me when I say that it's out and I will send my chapters to anyone once they get into their published form. The chapters are all they're not all necessarily related to language, but they are all related to whiteness in some way. One is in a book that's specifically about 
the, the book is about white liberalism, but the article or chapter is about the failures of altruism. So I'm building on that other article um, and how we need to move altruism out of teaching or the idea of altruism because it's stopping actual racial justice. Um, another of the chapters is about how people quickly apply the labels anti-racist and decolonizing to themselves without actually doing anything um, and how that stops people from actually doing anything. That one's called checkboxes and merit badges. Um, and then the last one is actually sort of an autobiographical, autoethnographic story about my own experiences being the you know, exceptional black kid in the private school and how they told me that made things better for me, but it was actually very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll have other articles that just not determine when they'll be out yet. So I can't say more other than they are, you know, in progress, but I have one, I'm two, I'm going to complete this fall and we'll see if they get published in the spring, probably, but I don't know when. And then I have one that I've already submitted for review that should be out sometime this fall, but there's only so much I can say at this point because people like to edit for nine years. So. Okay, yeah. Well, yeah, it takes longer to get something published than it does to have a baby. I think that's the truth of uh, academic publishing. Thank you so much. Appreciate you staying on for a bit longer as well. And we'll obviously be following your work closely. And like, I'll take you up on that offer when your chapters come out. I'm sure I'll be in touch. And the podcast too. I do. I have a podcast too. You put it in the link. Yep. We'll put all that in the show notes, uh, the podcast, the website, the ESL project, and uh, best of luck with everything, Justin. I think um, you're doing some great work and I think you're making a fantastic impact and let's hope it continues. Yeah, let's hope people listen to us, right? <laughs> right. Let's hope so. You've been listening to episode 10 of the SLB podcast. check out older episodes and get the latest ones please subscribe via apple podcasts spotify or any of the usual podcast providers and it'd really help us out if you could leave us a review or a rating on one of these platforms in episode 11 we'll be having a potted history of slb so hopefully we'll catch you again there cheerio